So um, give yourself enough volume to record with, but uh, I just feel awkward with the few of us that are here blasting this much sound. I don't know. Seems a little loud, but may not be. Isaiah chapter 30. So in the beginning of this, God exposes the sin of those in Judah that are trusting Egypt for salvation and deliverance rather than trusting in God. So the condemnation is not so much that they are recognizing their need, and we're going to talk about that, um, or looking for help, as it is they're, they're looking to Egypt and trusting in Egypt, and they aren't even looking to God. They, they have no consideration for him in the circumstance. So Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord. So it isn't just the general sense of rebellious children. It is very specific as he begins this examination of what it is they're doing. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me. Now, I, I preach on this subject a lot. Uh, because you know what David is saying in Psalm uh, chapter one about you know blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, and we're you know in this world that is just filled with ungodly counsel. The church you know is turning to psychology as though it's equal to God's word. You know we're looking for our answers in all the secular magazines. You know I. Uh, number of years ago you know i was at first blessed there there was this group um and you may be shocked if you're not aware of it it's called triple x church and uh their ministry was to help deliver people from pornography and uh, the porn industry so you know helping uh, men and women get out of working in, in that filth and um yeah, you know, I was blessed to think somebody was in those trenches and doing that work. But the more that I read and more that I saw what they're doing, I'm just like, there's big things messed up about this. And, uh, you know, one of the lead guys in the whole organization announced uh, recently that um, it's much easier to worship God when you're high on marijuana. You know, so you know this. This is the junk that you know is in the church. You know, uh, you have good organizations uh, that are helping men and women be freed from that type of sin and filth, and then there are others that claim to be equal in status, and they're horrible. They're, you know, it's just a, a wretched thing we're dealing with in the world and in the church as people take counsel, but not of me. You know, God is saying, "I'm I'm your counselor." I'm the one with wisdom. It has to be derived from me. And he continues the condemnation and by saying, and who's, who devise plans, but not of my spirit. So, so they don't take his counsel, and the plans that they're devising don't come from God, uh, that they may add sin to sin. You might want to make note of that statement. Who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. I like the way 
the Lord words that in the shadow of Egypt. So to begin with, this idea that they add sin to sin, you know, it's one sin to reject God. It's another sin altogether to trust in something else. You know, if an individual, you know, was uh, to simply turn away, you know, that's what the Lord is saying. Okay, there's one sin, but now you've actually moved to the point where you're now trusting in other things. You know, Isaiah's saying this during a time when Assyria is attacking Israel and Judah. Assyria will eventually carry the ten northern tribes of Israel away into captivity and then press all the more strongly to conquer you know, Judah in the south. So here's Judah dealing uh, with this threat and all of this pressure, and rather than you know, turn to the Lord, they're, they're turning to Egypt. Like I said in the introduction, it's certainly smart to recognize you know, when you're in trouble, when you need help, but turning uh, to Egypt ra- rather than turn if you you know went to the Lord and said, um, you know I need help. Should I go to Egypt? If the Lord was to instruct them, I guess that could be one thing. But they've rejected God and turned to Egypt, and then the Lord you know m- makes that you know statement towards the end that you know they're they're nothing. They, they are, you know, a shadow. So there's there's no substance. You know, you may think of, you know, what Colossians is saying about religion and all of the things we see in the Scripture. Those are the shadow of the substance, which is Christ. Israel is looking at Egypt like their substance, strength, army, military there to help them. And God is saying, for all that that looks like substance, it's just shadow. Um, I don't know if you've ever, you know, the, the sort of thing that he's relaying is, uh, you know, relying on something that isn't there. There's a real physical experience that he's sort of tying in. I'm sure you've, you know, either reached the bottom of the steps or the top of the steps and thought that there was, you know, one more step and, you know, jolted your whole body with the process of, you know, trying to step on something that's not there. And, you know, that's the idea is you think that there's something of substance in, in Egypt for you, and there's just not. It's, it's going to be a very, very hurtful thing uh, for you to, uh, you know, try to uh, get something out of it. This, this uh, you know, statement of how they, they are, you know, relying on the Lord, the Lord is saying, you know, they have nothing to offer you. There's, there's not anything there that uh, you can rely upon. It's, it's all uh, just very, very fake. Uh, 30 verse 3, Therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For your princes were at zone, and his ambassadors came to Haines. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be helped or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. So, you know, God's looking at all the strength, as we said, as though it's just a shadow. When Egypt's ambassadors came and saw 
that Judah had nothing that would benefit Egypt, they abandoned the negotiations. You know, everybody's making these big plans. Everybody's, and you know, they show up at the table, and there's nothing of substance there. You know, what a shameful thing for Judah, who, you know, the real embarrassment is God is going to handle the circumstance for them. And they are making themselves look foolish by not relying upon him, by, you know, turning their backs in this way. So then he makes this statement in verse 6. The burden against the beasts of the south through a land of trouble and anguish from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper, and the fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called for Rahab Hemshembeth. Now Israel gives or excuse me, not Israel, Isaiah gives this charge uh, to the donkeys, the beasts of burden who are going to risk their lives. The idea they're traveling through the southern territory where the lioness is, the lion. You've got all of these other deadly vipers and, and serpents that are described. You're going to take all this wealth and you're going to carry it down to Egypt as part of your negotiation. That's going to fall apart. The negotiation is going to fall apart. And in the end, it's not going to produce anything for you. I think, you know, we've probably all, you know, put a tremendous amount of energy into things different times in our lives and then finally come to the place where you're like, I have to just abandon this cause. This is, you know, going nowhere. I'm not accomplishing anything. And that's the idea here, especially the statement at the end of how he's going to call them Rehab Hem Shembeth. It means pride that sits idle or a little more literally pride the do nothing. You know, it, it doesn't speak poetically in uh, the English language, but in the Hebrew language, it's this idea of, you know, oh, you're this great prideful nothing. You, you have anything of substance uh, in in your person at all. It was always interesting to me having worked in television years ago you, you see the sets then you walk around behind and it's just you know we've all kind of seen it on television there's nothing there it's just a few two, two by fours and props and you've got the facade up to make it look the way you want it to and that's the idea here is you've got all this stuff that everyone looks at that's so magnificent you know in egypt the pyramids and the temples and the sphinx and everybody's wowed and there's nothing there it's just a whole bunch of cardboard more or less you know this paper lion or this paper dragon as it's become referred to in more modern times Re rely on it all you want there's there's nothing you know there to depend upon i don't know if you guys uh there's an interesting it's just a rabbit trail i'm chasing here but it applies um, there's an interesting documentary uh, called uh, The Ghost Army and um, the Ghost Army functioned in World War II they may still function and we don't know it but um, 
what they did in World War II was they developed um, just a huge system of props that they could set up very rapidly and take down. And I'm talking very elaborate props, you know, full-size inflatable tanks, um, you know, divisions of them. And, and so it isn't just like you might think, oh, well, you know, the enemy would be able to take photographs and see that. No, no. They actually went through the process of building massive, like massive sound systems that they took like the tops of tanks off and mounted these gigantic speakers on top of it. And it's actually where multi-track recording came from was the Ghost Army. Um, they recorded tanks going uphill and tanks going downhill. And what does 50,000 troops sound like when they're marching? What does 1,000 sound like? What does 10,000? And like when they would set up, they would actually play these soundtracks out in the open so that the listening devices of the enemy would hear what to them sounded like a massive army, you know, amassing just over the horizon. And uh, it played two parts. Not only uh, were they the Germans then frightened by the fact that, oh, there's a huge army right over there. But then it also, they, they would, uh, you know, fly planes over and look at the insignia and say, okay, that's such and such a division. So, you know, we thought they were in the south and going to be able to attack us in this way and that way, but they can't be there because, look, they're right over the horizon here. And then, you know, at midnight, they'd fall silent, pack the whole thing up and leave. And, you know, Germany, meanwhile, moves all of its strength over to oppose this invading force. And they arrive there and there's literally like 10 tire tracks in the mud and that's it. Because these guys could literally pick up a tank and walk over and set it down where it belonged. Literally have to stake it down so the wind wouldn't blow it away. The ghost army. Now, this is the idea of what's going on here. You're putting all your trust in Egypt. And there's no substance to it. it. It's just God is rebuking them. You know, you think about that. His great strength, his massive power at their disposal. They can, they can just reach out their hand to God and take a hold of his hand and his strength. And instead, they're over here playing around with shadows. This is why God is so deeply offended by this whole process. You know, you're acting like, I'm not here for you when I'm totally capable of handling you. Here's a commentator that it was very wordy. I've summarized it this way. If someone wants to kill you, it's not wise to get help from someone who's already tried to kill you. Yeah, Syria is coming, but Egypt's already tried to kill you. You don't know. Why, why would you look for help? against your enemy from a murderer. It's just a really foolish endeavor. So, you know, that's another thought in the whole process is Egypt has already betrayed you. I'm here as your father. I'm here as, you know, the, the image of a husband who wants to care for you and, and provide and protect you. And you're looking at your enemy and asking them to come over. God's deeply offended by this whole problem. This is a conversation that I have with a, a lot of people who, you know, struggle with drug addiction and alcoholism. They get in that tight spot where, you know, life is overwhelming them. It's, it's, it's not 
directly due to their drug addiction or their alcoholism. It's just the harshness of life is kicking their butt. And now they're going to turn to the bottle or to the drugs again to alleviate the problem. And, you know, I make the point, you know, this is like either, you know, nearly killed you in the past or wiped you out. And you're one more time when you're hitting the struggle, you're turning to the thing that that was a legitimate threat to your existence. You know, it should be a little more logical than that. 30 verse 8, God says, Now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may, may be for a time to come forever and ever. God is saying, I want this written down. What, what we're about to talk to, I want this written down. And, and the reason is that oral tradition falls apart. You know, God isn't saying, look, I want everybody to, to repeat this. Everybody talk about this. Everybody get this ingrained in your mind and share it with one another. Speak this to one another. No, he goes as far as saying, write it down. I, I want it written so that if it doesn't happen, then people can hold me accountable to the fact that I made this claim, I made this statement. You know, there's a, a big problem with religions that develop through oral tradition. You know, the honest people that examine them, you go back through history, and those religions change dramatically over time. You know, if, if you were false, you said things, you made predictions, supposed prophecies, and they didn't come true, well, just stop talking about it. You know, don't share that with people ever again. When you've put it in writing, okay, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they often want to make the claim of, oh, we've never made false claims. And they'll say, look, we have right here, uh, you know, the publication from, you know, 1978. We were never making predictions that Jesus Christ was going to return in 78. They had bumper stickers everywhere that said God won't be late in 78. But, you know, now they want to say they never said that. And they'll, they'll pull out the watchtower and say, look, right here, we have a publication. This is the entire year of 1978. Everything we printed, nowhere in here does it say that we predicted Jesus Christ was going to come back. Yeah, they have their own printing press. They actually own the largest piece of real estate in Brooklyn, New York. The single largest piece of real estate in Brooklyn, New York. It is where they print all of their materials. When I say largest, there's an elevator inside this facility that handles 18 wheelers no exaggeration they drive in and they lower the 18 wheeler down and they put on you know so many copies of pearl of great price and so many copies of this and so many copies of that they fill the order and then raise it back up to street level and the 18 wheeler drives out and then the next one pulls in okay they, they that's that's essentially oral tradition they're only saying what they want repeated. They're constantly changing the written history. You know, I've met people who used to be in the Jehovah's Witnesses who have those original copies, and if you set them beside what they're printing now, it's totally changed. God is saying, I want it written down so that it can't change. Make the record right now so that when this comes to pass, it will be known forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who do not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. 
Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. So, you know, you gotta, you're way too harsh. We want you to say nice things, is what they're saying to Isaiah. You just, you, you just, you're so angry. You're so gruff. We can't handle it. We want, we want you, okay, if that's what you've got to say to us, but we want you to say it differently. And God is saying, no, no, no. I got one message and I got one toe, and you're going to get it. You're going to get it. You know, I've, I've, I've molded and fashioned Isaiah in the way that I saw fit, and I've put my message in his mind and in his mouth, and that man is supposed to speak that way. And they're saying, we don't like it. We want something else. Isn't there a menu we could choose from? We're not really into all this tough, meaty entree. We were more looking for dessert. You know, you got any like light cream and maybe some sweetness that we could take? And God is saying, not at all. You've rejected my word. Remember in chapter 29, he talked about that blindness that would come upon them as a nation because they've rejected the seer the man of vision, the prophet of God. They don't want to hear it. They don't want understanding. Oh, if that is not a picture of today's church that, that does not want truth spoken to it. You know, they're sitting with their itching ears saying, only tune your message to these channels. We, we want to hear it in a very specific way. You Don't you dare you know, say things you know, don't mention sin. Don't mention hell. Don't talk about condemnation. You know, definitely don't get specific about what sins are. Don't label anybody's behavior as sinful. The whole, the whole message has got to be politically correct. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. These, you know, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Stop with all of this. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Take God out of the message. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Think about that, you guys. Think about where the church is headed to where it's turning God into this generic being. It's stripping out his identity. It doesn't want the specifics. You know, it doesn't want it to be he or she. It doesn't want it to be his personage. You know, you're going to rewrite this whole thing so that it's something we're all comfortable with. You know, this uh, past week, Casey gave me two articles about fathers in Canada who have been arrested because they refer to their children according to their proper gender. You know, they, they refuse, they, you know, transgender, they're changing their gender. And so born as a little girl, born as his daughter, he's refusing to call her he now, refusing to use her newly adopted male name. He's been arrested. They've been arrested. That is very close to us. You know, not just geographically. We, we, we are close to having those same things. You know, aren't you guys excited? You know, what we this week we've outlawed styrofoam in the state. That was that was a blessing. You know, Janet Mills. Single use styrofoams now against the law in the state of Maine. I don't know if that's gonna go all the way to our Dunkin' Donuts cups or how that's gonna work. You might not be able to get styrofoam in the stores. 
for your own cookout. Real. She signed the bill. It's it's law. Um, you know, uh, what was the other one? Oh, um, she uh, signed three bills that uh, make abortion uh, that much more accessible to people in the state of Maine. You know, the, the spending in welfare, the uncontrolled turn, you know, towards the left that we've taken. This remarkable thing where we stand in time. The whole of our culture and society is screaming for this same message. They, they want to turn uh, towards the sinfulness and the destruction that is to come. This is this is a human problem all throughout time. It's not just isolated to Israel in this moment or where we sit. You know, Paul forewarned Timothy, the young pastor that he trained up in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Um, not that you guys care to hear any of this, but it, it does paint a certain picture. This idea, most of us have heard those verses many times in our lives. We've been in churches and we've heard that taught. You know, the itching ears, it's, it's more along this idea. We have this black lab and he's a great old guy. We call him Theo. Um, Theo has a food allergy. Um, so grains cause him to break out like immediately. Huge. Not like his, his lips will blister up and split open with one meal. You know, he loves bread as a result. Um, you know, he's not the dog that's going to get into, you know, your steaks. Or, you know, if you bring fresh baked bread into the house, you need to hide it, right? There have been more than one occasion where you're literally like picking up this empty bag off the floor, throwing it away. Like, how did that get there? It's the weirdest thing. Didn't I just buy a loaf of that bread? And you realize the groceries you just brought in the house, you set it down. And when you went back out to the car, no exaggeration, and got the three bags to bring in, he got that down and ate the whole loaf that fast. It's gone. And he'll start breaking out. His ears are the worst part of it, right? Because you can sort of see what's going on in other locations, but inside his ears, it gets all broken out. And he'll come over to you, and if you start scratching his ear, he'll just lean in and do that dog moan thing, like, oh, yeah, just scratch. And what it is, is he's all broke. You're actually doing damage. You know, he he's like scratch, and by scratching, you're damaging. You're splitting that all open. You know, the next thing you know, he's got to go to the vet. He's going to have these open sores treated. He's gotten infected, and that's more the picture of what the Lord is saying. They will, from a spiritual illness, they will not take the healthiness of God's word. They will lean right in and say, "Yeah, just keep scratching." until they've been torn open by their sin. They reject the soundness that is God to their own destruction, to their own damage. This isn't even just the idea of, yes, scratch right there, it feels good. It's a matter of them having a sickness that, you know, 
probably you've had poison ivy where you wanted to just scratch it, or maybe you did scratch your skin right off. You know, those different illnesses, hives, different things. It's that idea of scratching to the point where you're doing serious damage in the circumstance. That's what the Lord is saying. There's going to come a time where people will lean right into whoever will scratch their itching ears. Those will be the mega churches. Those will be, you know, the, the great ministries, uh, you know, with, you know, the number one best-selling books and authors because everybody's going to lean right in with their wallets and their attendance, their hearts, their minds, their motivations, their behaviors. They will lean right into it. And, and the prophet is standing here, you know, saying to them, you're rejecting God in the process. You're not, you're not listening to the, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says, verse 12, the Holy One of Israel, because you despise his word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. You know, they were very accustomed to walls. And, uh, you know, I don't know. If you've ever seen a, a stone wall collapse, you know, Mike, uh, Mike Dynick uh, had a house and we, we moved in. Remember that, John, that, that wall behind the house that collapsed, the stone wall? You remember that, Oliver, that, that whole brick stone wall that was behind the house? Um, you know, Mike had taken high tensile strength cable and run it from one end, driven big rods in the ground, put the cable around it, ran it the whole length and around the big apple tree that was there and the other end driven stakes in the ground. And, you know, he was going to do something about it. When we moved in, I said, oh, I'll handle that. You don't worry about it. The following summer, you know, this bulge on the front of the wall is just all sticking out and you can it's just straining at the cables. And, you know, when I cut the cable, I was totally thinking, yeah, you know, probably some of that will fall down. I cut that cable and that whole wall just gave way. It collapsed all full out in the yard. We spent the rest of that summer taking it down to the foundation and rebuilding it all the way back up. You know, the, the idea here, this, this breach, the fall, the bulging of the wall, the straining against what should be there, that's where Israel is at at this point in their time. You can see all the cracks. You can see all the pushing. They're resisting God's restraint. Oh, is our culture not there? Just pushing against everything that is God, pushing against all that is right. You know, you could everybody can see. No, no, you should be going the other direction. You know, your your culture is going to collapse, and instead they strain at going the direction of their desires. It's it's a horrible, destructive thing that that we're witnessing go on. Their breaking is going to come suddenly, in an instant. You know, and and honestly, you guys. When our culture finally reaches the point of energy and power where it's able to make God's laws of right and wrong collapse, as everything lets go, there's going to be a momentary cheer from the sinful side of our culture that thinks this is wonderful, you know, the, the thrill of rushing forward into their sin. And it's not going to be until things start to blow up and crack and just, you know, disintegrate all around. And then they'll all be standing around going, how could this have happened? 
you've you've asked for this. You've begged for this. You've insisted that your politicians change the laws and move the lines and recreate the culture. And now we're all going to have to live with the outcome. The bursting through of the wall is going to break us all. He shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. Not, you know, there won't be you know, the idea that you know, there was this vessel, this earthen vessel, the potter's vessel, and it got shattered in such a way that there won't even be like a scooped fragment that you could pick up and think, well, you know, I could scoop coals out of this fire and carry them back to my house in this, dump them in my fireplace and, you know, put some kindling and, you know, some tinder on it and get a, a fire going in mine. There won't even be a fragment big enough to dip into water and just take a few sips out of. There will be a shattering to a degree that, you know, sift through the pile. Look all you want. It's going to be utter ruin. And that, you know, that ends up being the case for Israel. I think people are really extremely arrogant in, you know, our American culture that they keep pushing this direction against God, against right and wrong, with no thought that, oh, we're all going to have to pay the cost for this. When the, when the breaking finally comes, you know, there, there isn't going to be any freedom. I was having a conversation uh, with some of the guys in jail, you know, doing jail ministry last night. I was talking about this issue of hate speech. And at first, they're all like, yeah, that's some terrible stuff. And, you know, as we went through the discussion, I'm explaining, well, now you're talking about the loss of freedom of speech. And you could tell they sort of had the, uh, you know, a bunch of them had the attitude like, you know, well, so what? I don't say, well, what if the powers shift and suddenly now they decide the way that you communicate and talk is against the law? And you could see like the realization of like, wait a second. Yeah, once you take one group's freedom of speech away, everybody loses their freedom of speech. You know, you take one group's freedom of religion away. Everybody loses their freedom of religion in that moment. You know, the Constitution was designed with the godly concept of freedom, you know, in, in incorporated into it so that it protects us all. The person that embraces God and the person that rejects God is protected in what God has designed in our culture and in our country. You start getting rid of these things, everybody suffers the consequences. When the collapse comes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit, it's going to touch Everyone. And why? He starts here in verse 12 by saying, because you despised this word. You despise the word of God. Therefore, this iniquity shall be like a breach ready to fall. You know, this breaking will come suddenly in an instant. You know, this shattering, broken in pieces, is what's going to be the end result. There will be just fragments uh, everywhere. So 30.15 says, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. Now look, <clears throat> this happens in a couple phases, but what God begins to describe here 
is their restoration. The first segment of it is he's speaking to anyone within the culture who would listen to him at this present time. He's saying, you don't want to experience this. This sounds horrible to you. What I'm describing is something you'd like to avoid. Then he gives them the outline. There's only a small group that's going to embrace it right here in the moment. Then what's going to happen is, as it's falling apart, there will be another phase of people that say, oh, this has gone a lot farther than what we expected. And they'll recognize the need to get right with the Lord. So he's just setting this out as a map so that even when you get to the point where it's totally destroyed and there's just a small remnant left, even those amongst them that want to will be able to look at this and go, wait a second, there's a way to get right with God. There's a way for us to restore our relationship with him. So he sets this out, you know, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and a banner on a hill. The idea that, you know, if there's a single survivor, he will be like easily recognized. He'll stand out, you know, like, like a single pole standing on top of a hill. You know, it's not going to be missed. You, you know, if you, if you were in a massive crowd of 10,000 people and you were trying to say to your friend, you know, look at that guy right there, the guy with the red hat, you'd be like, there's thousands of people here. How could I possibly pick out one person when this is all done the destruction will be so complete it'll be like see that one pole standing right there on top of the hill and everybody goes yeah that's going to be the survivability of these circumstances it's going to be that drastic it's going to be apocalyptic in its nature now i like the fact that god puts forward you know beginning in verse 15 this idea one return and then rest and salvation in quietness and confidence and strength. Think about those words, those descriptive words right there of what God is saying about their repentance. You know, what, what is repentance? It's turning around, returning. Returning to what? The rest, the peacefulness that comes. He then says, you know, you'll be saved in quietness, right? Be still and know that I am God. A pastor that's you know associated with Calvary Chapel Finger Lakes, uh, Peter Will, is from Germany. He's got a Scot great Scottish accent. And uh, I was at a pastor's conference years ago, and I'll never forget him saying, you know, when, when you find your rest in Jesus, you find the rest. And, it just, and he just let it, he did, just didn't move on. He just stared into our faces and let that sink in. And the realization of, of course, if I find my rest in Jesus, then everything else I'm worried about. You know, these people are overwhelmed with the prospects of Assyria is going to come here and kill us and carry us away into captivity. We got to go hire Egypt 
to protect us. And, and the Lord is saying, if you'll just rest in me. That's, that's difficult to do, isn't it? When life's circumstances are just raging in your face and you're thinking, like, I've got to do something drastic and I've got to do it right now. And, you know, the Lord is, is saying to us and to them, no, it's, it's in turning around, returning, and walking straight back into the rest that is my salvation and quietness. That's going to be the thing, right? They're looking at uh, Egypt like a confidence. You know, oh, if, we can, if only we could get Egypt over here, you know, with their chariots and their horsemen, you know, and their curved swords and their, you know, battle-hardened, trained, you know, infantry. That's what we need. We need skilled fighters. And the Lord is saying, no. No, you need to just, you need to turn around. In fact, just walk back into the siege that you're currently falling under. Just walk back into my arms and rest in the salvation that I already have planned for you. It's, it's really hard to do. Now, we can read it simple enough. But when our life is being torn apart, you know, that's, that is really difficult to do. Here, here, the rebuke at the beginning, right? Because if we turn away from him and we start trusting in the other things, if we start turning to the wisdom of the world, if we start trying to find our own plan, then the Lord is saying, you're rebellious children. I don't ever want to be called that, especially by God. I do not want God calling me a rebellious son. So making my plans for other things, I really need to recognize how rebellious that is. I need to recognize, oh, well, this is my plan. I know what I'll do. If it all falls apart, you know, I'll flee in this way. I'll, I'll just scrape together all of this and, you know, run off into those circumstances God is saying well you probably want to because there are going to be things chasing you go ahead hop on your horse you know jump in that thing with all the horsepower and run away and see if you can escape your circumstances because what's coming after you is going to be so potent that it's going to be capable of destroying one of them will be capable of destroying a thousand of you that's that's a hard thing to hear, you know. When when God is saying, if if you run, you're going to be destroyed. If if you you know turn away, you're going to experience uh, an utter judgment. This is you know in complete contrast to what the Lord had said to them previously. If if you think about Leviticus chapter twenty six. Verse 8, speaking to Israel, he said, Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. If you are repentant, if you are turning to me, if you are embracing me, I'll give you immeasurable strength. You know, people, I, I love the fact that, you know, 1967, as Israel's being invaded, uh, from all sides, you know, one tank commander is running up over the dune and firing his tank and backing down and then racing around over on the side and up over the dune and firing his tank. And the whole time, 
he's calling out orders to other tanks that don't exist. He's talking on the radio as though he's 10 tanks, 20 tanks, 100 tanks. He chased the entire Egyptian army of tanks back into Egypt on his own. When walking with the Lord, the Lord gives us the ability to face, you know, when he's saying, return to me in quietness, confidence shall be your strength. When we are in that settled place of peacefulness of knowing, no, I, I know I'm in the right place with the Lord. There is no compromise in my life. I don't have hidden sin. I'm not relying on other things to give me peace. I'm, I'm finding my assurance in Christ. When we do that, we're able to rest in that confidence and have great victory. When we don't, when we're not, the exact opposite is true. You know, it, it turns into that thing of, you know, the mouse is scaring the elephant. You know, we have all of Christ's strength at our disposal, and the smallest little things in life are freaking us out. You know, we're scared to death about that little circumstance and that little circumstance. Focus your heart and your mind on Christ. And that, that takes a lot of strength at times, does it not? To just turn yourself around forcibly, say, no, I'm marching myself back to God. I'm not, not going this way anymore. My circumstances have frightened me into this corner, and I'm done with that. I'm, I'm going to now walk with the Lord the way I should. I love the fact that in the midst of this whole thing, God says, you know, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. He doesn't say, oh, stinks to be you. If only you hadn't walked away. If only you hadn't doubted. Then maybe I could have done something. But since you have, since you're off in that bad place, I don't have anything for you. He recognizes you're in a real bad place, aren't you? Okay, well, here's your answer. Turn around, return to me, and find the salvation that is your rest. I love the grace of God. And he goes further with this. Therefore, verse 18, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. We as pastors and as Christians, we often get to this question of why does God wait? Yeah, I I needed him yesterday. I needed him a month ago. I needed him a year ago. And now I'm in this junk pile. And why in the world has he waited? And the answer right is right here is that he may be gracious to you. Right, You know, how gracious is it of God when we've gone through all the ups and downs and we've gotten to the point where now we're bad-mouthing him? You know, God has done, why, if God is so, then why do I have to deal with this? If God, if God is God, then why is, we don't even recognize the degree to which it's an accusation on our own lips. Look, then when he comes through for us, as though we never ran our mouth and trash talked like that. How gracious is that, right? Because we don't we don't tend to be gracious like that, right? We 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 step into the situation and we were going to help somebody out, 
and we get there and now they're running their mouth at us. We're like, well, stinks to be you. Guess you're on your own now. You know, I, I came over here to help you, but I arrived and you were just full of junk. So figure it out yourself. That's not how God functions. God shows up and he takes care of our circumstance. That's grace. That's grace. That, that's why he waits so long. Why? So that we can realize how faithless we are. He knew all along, right? We, we brag to everybody about, I'm a Christian. I rely upon the Lord. I read my Bible every day. Just, you ought to come to my Bible study. And just, you know, and then we get crushed. And we're wailing and crying and accusing and saying all kinds of junk. <laughs> and then God graciously answers our circumstance. And then we gotta we gotta eat crow. We gotta look back across and realize I really spoke ill of my heavenly father. I was very much like the nation of Israel who said things like, God brought me out in this desert to kill me. We learn that about ourselves. God isn't surprised, right? When we fall apart like that. It's not as though God is like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know this poison was in their heart. God is saying through that process, no, I knew that poison was in your heart. I saw how shallow you were. You didn't know it. And I had to just push on you a little bit to get that junk to come out of you. And now that you got that out, can we move father, you know, forward as father and child? Can, can you learn that I'm faithful? Can you trust me in the future circumstances? You know, what if the future circumstances get even darker than these ones will? You know, these ones were so hard, and they were, but how about when we hit the next level, and it's way worse than this? You're going to grow up, you're going to get strong, you're going to let, you know, my strength pour through you, or are you going to fall apart all over again? Because I guarantee you what the Lord is going to do, right? When he says, he who's faithful in the little things will be granted more He's going to continue to allow these little tests to come to us over and over and over again until we gain the strength necessary to handle the big stuff. If we can't handle the little things, then we're never going to handle the big things. We're never going to handle the big trials that come. You know, this, this waiting for him, you know, it, it's twofold. It is the idea of patience and waiting and the passage of time. But it also, in the Hebrew language, has the mindset of when you wait on God, it means you're interwoven with him. It, it has the sense of what Jesus is saying in John 15 about, you know, I'm the vine and you're the branches. You know, our language... When, it, when we say wait, it's, it's simply just the passage of time. Like, I'm just sitting here waiting. No, it's the idea of being completely integrated with God as we patiently await the arrival of His you know, answers and deliverance and salvation and circumstances. So, you know, let's make sure we understand that, you know, it is that you know, full picture of God's work. 3019, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. 
you shall weep no more. So now we get into the, you know, the certainly the present circumstance, but now he starts to lift the vision way out into the millennial reign. You know, there's going to come a point where, you know, every tear will be wiped away. Comfort will come to all of us. So they're going to experience the deliverance from Assyria in these circumstances. But he starts to broaden the picture a little bit here. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. you know, so very often what I witness is the complaining isn't actually a request. When the calling out to God comes, God begins to answer. He hears our cries. The Lord will give us what is necessary. You know, it, it, we need to be clear, like Paul, who prayed that the thorn in the flesh would be removed from him. You know, he finally heard, my grace is sufficient. You know, once he heard that and had that clarity, he could begin to rely upon God's grace. What he was looking for was God's deliverance. And then when it came to him, oh, deliverance is never coming. God's grace is going to carry me through every moment for the rest of my life. That, that's an amazing thing. You know, I always feel so foolish when I've been through my trials and my difficulties and then you... You know, somebody gives you a book written by Johnny Erickson Tata, and you're like, oh, <laughs> what was I complaining about? You know, I can still move my hands. You know, I drove myself here. There's always somebody that's suffering more than you. God does answer. He does hear. You know, our circumstances don't feel like it, and our enemy whispers in our ear, yeah, well, maybe God's answering those people over there, but God loves them. <laughs> the implication, God hates you or loves you less. He hears us as well as he hears them. He loves us as much as he loves them. We have a very personal relationship and he knows what we need. He knows what he's going to work out in our circumstances. And then God even addresses it directly. In verse 20, though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, right? You know, we try to be politically correct about the scripture. Well, God doesn't actually do these things. You know, he allows them to happen. Uh, that's not what this is saying. God is literally, this is God saying, yeah, I prepared that meal. Th that adversity you're experiencing, that affliction you're currently consuming, yeah, I put that together for you. That's my doing. This is God owning it right here. Why? Yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. You'll finally recognize the affliction and the adversity for what it is. Right? How many times have I quoted James, those first few verses from chapter 1 to us, right? Consider it. Pure joy whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds. Because the testing of your faith must develop perseverance so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The implication is, you're lacking something. So, I'm going to send this trial that you could learn. 
that you could grow. It is our teacher. It exposes to us the things we need to see and hear. You know, it's not going to be in a corner where you can't find it. Where is, what is this thing? Why am I going through this affliction? What is this adversity? Why, get, why do I have this? Then it's going to become plain. You know, the teacher is just going to be very visible. Oh, now I get it. Now I see what the Lord is doing in my circumstances. If you're still scratching your head, if you're still saying, why, why, why? Well, then you haven't reached the end of the adversity, the affliction, or come to the realization of what and who your teacher are yet. It's a gracious thing when you can finally see those things with great clarity. 30 verse 22 you will also defile the covering of your images of silver. This is actually like the triumphant verse in the midst of this. And the ornament of your molded images of gold, you will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. This is a little embarrassing, but it's got to be addressed. This is one of those unfortunate occasions in the New King James Version because... In verse 22, where it says unclean thing, it is literally menstrual cloth. You're going to get rid of your idols. You're going to get rid of your sinfulness like a thing that you would never keep or venerate. It would be done away with. And you would throw it away in such a way that you would say, get away. Those things that we loved and embraced and consumed and protected and ruined our relationship with God over are finally going to come to the place through the adversity, through the affliction, through the lessons. We will come to realize what they are and we will get rid of them like a filthy thing that we would never keep around. It's a strange transition that takes place. Where yesterday, it was the most venerated thing in our life. And today, it's miserable and vomitous, and we want it away from us. That's what the Lord needs to work out in us. That's the reality of these things and these circumstances. God sees them for what they are. We're so sick and depraved in our sin that we embrace the most despicable things. And God is saying, I've got to teach you this lesson. I've got to get this out of your life. I've got to bring you to the place where you hate these things the way I hate these things. Where you see them for what they are. That, that takes a big breaking sometimes. You know, the shattering of the pot. You know, the warnings come. And 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 then the destruction finally arrives and oh do we recognize it then and we look back at all the warnings and think why didn't i turn back then it's got to come to the place whichever way you want it right jesus said you can throw yourself on the rock and be broken right just raise yourself up like the earthen vessel you are and just plunge the thing down Upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Or in your fear, in your stubbornness, 
you can cling and hide and hold on until that rock falls upon you. And it will grind you to powder. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this in people's lives. Where they cling and hold and hang on and ignore until utter destruction. I have sat and sobbed convulsively with people about why didn't I turn before this moment. Why? Pride, fear. Fear is a big part of it. People don't realize that. I'm afraid. I'm afraid this provides me with some level of comfort. I, I, can't, I can't live without this. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of moving forward without this. This relationship, this substance, these experiences. I just, I don't know how I would live. That's the whole point. Christ wants to deliver us from the thing that destroys us. He wants us to experience his fulfillment. 30 verse 23, then he will give the rain for your seed which with which you sow the ground, the bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful in that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. You know, he's now just painting a magnificent picture for all of these farmers. You know, this is like the ultimate expression prosperity in their mind you know this is like all things are good <laughs> rain and crops and cattle amen you know you know whatever picture that might paint in our mind you know when the scripture is telling us the man the woman who hides their sin will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes you know will find mercy it's in the turning. It's in returning to the Lord. It's in the repentance that you find the increase. Whether you're wealthy or not, you know, the, pros the spiritual prosperity, the peace, the joy, the comfort, the confidence that uh, comes. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, uh, which has been winnowed with the shovel and Fan, you know, so like even the food for the animals will be the best sources. There will be an, on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of water in the day of the great slaughter. When the towers fall, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wounds. There's a lot contained within that statement, you know, specifically speaking of Israel, but, you know, Christians also, anyone who would be his people. This, this life is hard, harsh, brutal, wounding, difficult. And there's a coming comfort, not just in his presence in eternity, in this lifetime that comes through the breaking process and the affliction and the pain that he brings us through until he fulfills all that he wants to in our hearts, our minds, and our lives. 30.27 Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue like a devouring Fire. Now, as you start to move through this, it, it, it should paint a picture and sort of generate a fear 
like, oh my goodness, here comes judgment. You know, God is coming with this intensity, his tongue like a devouring fire, his breath like an overflowing stream, which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility that there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. You shall have a song as in the night when a, a holy festival is kept, the gladness of heart as when one goes with the flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. So the mighty one of Israel that they've rejected, now the trials and the testing and the judgment has come and the breaking and the fulfillment of all that God desires. So this is the specific moment for this nation, Judah, who has watched Assyria attack Israel and carry them away, and now it's coming for them, and God is going to bring all these things to fulfillment. And there's also the future fulfillment, like we said, of the millennial reign and then the new earth and the new heaven, the great joy that's going to come in the midst of judgment and trial and fiery indignation, gladness of heart as one goes with the flute. In 1 John chapter 4, at verse 17, it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Yeah, there's judgment coming. Yes, there's fiery indignation. We're not going to experience that. Why? Not because we've been good. Not because we've, you know, uh, you know, sung all the right songs and raised our hands at all the right moments and, you know, put our money in the plate and done all these things to be acceptable to God because Jesus Christ has covered us with his blood. We have a boldness that comes from his righteousness that gives us access to this. So right in the middle of all this difficulty, there's this song, this heart of singing and the flute of celebration. 3030, the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descendants of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempests and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down He as he strikes with a rod and in every place where the staff of punishment passes which the Lord lays on him. It will be with uh, tambourines and harps and a battle of uh, brandishing. He will fight with them for Tophet. That's, there's a lot of deba debate, but that's literally hell has been established of old. Yes, for the king, it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord is like a stream of brimstone that kindles it. So this is speaking of the fact that you've been in panic. You've seen the capabilities of Syria, what they're doing to Israel, and you've run off to Egypt to try and get help. But I'm going to come through in this fiery indignation and deal with Assyria in a way that you couldn't possibly imagine. And this is the Lord referring to 2 Kings chapter 19 at verse 35, 
where he comes through and kills 185,000 of them all at once. The, the, the death of their enemies is going to be a great, glorious celebration. And as hard as it is to understand this, where he plunges them as the enemies of Israel all into hell at once. He, he made that mention, you know, this brandishing you will fight with it for hell has, it was established of old, yes, uh, for the king it is prepared. You know, there's a small K on that king the one who's going to be plunged into that, you know, so that the people of Israel could celebrate, right? They, they went from the place of starving and cannibalism in one night to the next day, you know, flour and bread were incredibly cheap. God cared for them as a nation. Brothers and sisters, we need to get our mind wrapped around the idea of when our circumstances look more dark than they ever have. That's God's heart right there. To come and with fiery indignation crush the circumstances that are crushing us. If, if we will turn from our own plans, turn from our own counsels, turn from our own thoughts and rely upon Him. Look to His salvation. We trust in what He has prepared and provided for us. As, as long as we're going the other direction, you know, you heard him say, okay, get on the horse, run. The junk's going to chase you. You're not going to be able to get away from it. It's going to be hot on your heels. So consider, consider it as an encouragement. You know, not so much as a condemnation. It starts out with, you know, you rebellious children, but it ends with just turn to me. Just turn to me and trust me. And, and watch my deliverance come to you. So be encouraged. God sees us in our circumstance and wants to care for us. Amen? Amen. We'll pick up with chapter 31 next week. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord God, you are magnificent. Above all other things having given us life and called us your children. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our struggles. Lord, forgive us for our shortcomings. Help us to rely upon you. Help us to turn our hearts to you. That we would wait upon you and, and see your great hand caring for us, Lord. We thank you that we have these promises, Lord. Fill us with the strength of your spirit that we would be able to trust in those promises through these trials. Give us your strength. Give us your confidence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.